Fly fishing is fun. It really is. It's quiet, peaceful, not a lot of people around, and it's very relaxing. Very relaxing. It kind of evolved all from having a love for the finished work, and apparently is in my blood because I've always gone back to the canoes. I started reading some books about fly fishing and went out and got a seven-foot Fenwick fiberglass rod and tried my luck. And for the first two or three years, to be honest, I didn't catch a damn trout. And I said, you know, I don't know how it's happened, but I've gone from rolling stones to kidney stones in the blink of an eye. (laughs) It's like way too fast to ride. How did this happen? But it's been a great ride. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Macaulay Lord. Macaulay is quite possibly the most prolific living and contributing member in the Maine fly casting community. Macaulay lives in Brunswick, Maine with his wife Carol and their two Labrador retrievers. He has worked for L.L. Bean teaching fly fishing professionally for over 37 years. Macaulay is a registered Maine guide, the author of two books on fly casting, and has trained fly fishing guides and fly casting instructors on four continents. Macaulay has always had an acute interest in developing and teaching techniques that simplify the sport making it approachable and understandable for his students in a way that has led him to developing a teaching style that makes the sport as easy as possible for people to engage and grow with quick success and immediate and positive results. It was through this careful influence, Macaulay was able to develop a teaching program for L.L. Bean that transformed the approach of learning to flycast in a way he was able to prove and implement, and continues today as the template the program utilizes because of the success this unique approach has earned. In that process, Macaulay authored the L.L. Bean Flycasting Handbook, widely regarded in the flycasting instruction world as a staple study of proper flycasting technique. He also developed a revolutionary approach of casting instruction by utilizing film and video to capture a student's fly cast, to offer immediate positive feedback as well as first-hand examples of where potential improvement could be achieved. Macaulay has run the gamut in the international fly casting world, serving at almost every level for the Federation of Fly Fishers, now known as Fly Fishers International. Macaulay has served on the Board of Governors for the organization, along with the likes of Lefty Cray, Joan Wolfe, Mel Krieger, Steve Rajeff, Gary Borger, and David Whitlock, just to name a few. Ultimately, Macaulay was awarded the highest distinction in the fly casting world, the prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award by the Fly Fishers International. This award recognizes those who have made significant contributions to the world of fly casting instruction, and Macaulay is, was, and will always be deserving of that distinction. His name will go down in Maine fly fishing history as a person that has shaped and developed the sport and industry through his careful influence and professionalism. In addition to his work with fly fishing and fly casting instruction, Macaulay has taken on a life interest in supporting his larger community by studying at the Bangor Theological Seminary and regularly volunteers as a chaplain in many capacities that we will share in this captivating conversation. I've known Mac for almost 30 years, and he has taught me a ton over those years, at times always knowing what I needed to learn to become a better instructor, guide, and influence in our shared community. As a result of his careful mentoring, we've become friends. 
fish together, shared concepts, ideas, and places that we mutually enjoy fly fishing. I consider Macaulay to be one of the major influences in the success I have garnered in my own career as a fly fishing professional. Macaulay is regarded as a man of great conviction, a person capable of achieving anything he sets his mind to. And above all, Macaulay is ultimately a shining light in the fly fishing community, as well as the main living community that we all love to be a part of. It comes with distinct pleasure to introduce the Flyline podcast audience to an old friend, a decorated leader in the international fly fishing community, and my personal fly casting sensei. Macaulay, welcome to the Flyline podcast. Well, Michael, this is really a pleasure. Thanks for coming to my dining room and being with my dogs and me. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. That's wonderful. And, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but we haven't seen each other in a long time. It just seems like that happens to so many people in so many ways. And the podcast has really been a gift to me because it's brought me back together with people like yourself that I have a meaningful connection to. You know, we've fished together. We've known each other. You've taught me a ton over the years. Uh, but I admit, I was thinking about this conversation, and I have to admit, there's a lot about you that I don't know. And I bet there's a lot about you that our audience doesn't know either. Good stuff at that. But I'd well, like to uncover that. Okay. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, originally. My grandparents had four ponds on their farm outside Louisville. And starting when I was 12, I would go out and fish the ponds. And I started on a cane pole, bobber, worm, split shot. Graduated uh, because a friend of my grandparents took me under his wing. Graduated probably when I was 13 to um, push button, the Zepco 33. And I know many of your listeners are familiar with the old Zepco. I had one. Zepco, zero hour bomb company. You you knew that? No. They made bombs in World War II. No. Once the war's over, they're not making as many bombs. And somebody comes along and says, you guys are pretty good with aluminum. How about a fishing reel? Zepco, Zero Hour Bomb Company. No kidding. Yeah. So I know if like Grumman made planes, obviously. Right. And and then they turned into a canoe company. Same idea. Yeah. Right. So um, I graduated to the push button Zepco. And then probably in late, probably later in my 13th year, the same guy who got me interested in, who, who taught me how to spin fish, he put a flyer on my hands. Who was he? Ed Jackson was somebody my grandfather referred to as a country lawyer. Ed, his full legal name was Ed, middle initial P. It didn't stand for anything. His legal name on his passport, if he had one, Ed P. Jackson, wonderful guy. And he put a fly rod in my hands and I'd fish these little foam spiders for bluegill. And of course, I didn't, I wasn't very good at knots or the, you know, the leader got shorter and stubbier and I don't know what I did when the leader just went. Wasn't even a leader. I wouldn't even know. Yeah. But, you know, I caught a lot of bluegill. Every once in a while, I'd catch a largemouth bass. Yeah. And unlike many of your listeners who are from this part of the world, for whom bass is a trash fish, I would say, it's a bass, right? This was a big deal in my life. So that's how I got started. Yeah. And so you were 13 when you were introduced yeah. to the fly room? Yeah. More or less. Yeah, pretty close. So there's going to be a gap for the people that don't know Macaulay Lord between being extremely successful with a fly rod and your first introduction. So once you left the pond in Louisville, 
Did you get onto a river? Did you meet other people? Well, you know, uh, to make a long story short, my family did. We were very privileged. We just were. My family took my brother and me on a, a grand tour of Europe. I think I'm 14. I carry my grandfather's bamboo fly rod with me in the original tube all over Europe. Why? Because we went to a little stream in the Austrian Alps that he had fished maybe 20 years earlier, and he fished it with a countess, Yolanda Japari. Why? Because she owned the stream. Yeah. And he stayed in her little castle, he and my grandmother. And I went and fished that stream with his rod maybe 20 years later. I had no idea what trout flies were. I was used to spiders. By the way, I caught a really nice brown on one of his balsa popping bugs. Why? Because why wouldn't a brown come up and eat a pup? Absolutely. So um, so that was I think that was when I was 14. I didn't I hardly fished in my early actually in my college years I hardly fished. I would blue fish with a spin rod. Yeah. This was off me and tuck it. But uh I didn't get into fly fishing in earnest until oh probably the year before I graduated from Bowdoin and I had a, a really good friend who I was about to graduate and we were gonna he said, Let's go on this trip. Let's let's go fly fishing together. We're gonna we're gonna go to Baxter and and he was an English major, and he said, Hemingway's big two-hearted river. Let's go fly fishing. I didn't have a no. suitable fly rod. My old, my old South Bend fly rod was solid fiberglass. It's in the basement. I haven't cast it in 55 years, <laughs> something like that. So 50 years. And um, so we go to Beans. I buy a Fenwick Ferrolite, seven-foot, five-weight rod, designed by my mentor, Jimmy Green. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Green designed the modern fly rod for mm -hmm. the Ferrolite. And I have one of his rods. And years later, he's the guy that tested me for my master instructor certification. And to be tested by him when I had this deep connection to him was really, it was really beautiful. So um, Jeff McCallum and I go fishing in Baxter Park. We don't catch anything. The weather is horrific. We're idiots. We don't know anything. We drive to Nova Scotia. One of us catches a brook trout. I don't even remember who it was. And that was the extent of our fishing success on that trip. Fast forward a year, Archie Smith and I, my classmate at Bowdoin, we get in his Toyota Corolla and we drive Montana, British Columbia, almost to Alaska. And Fantastic. we fished our brains out. And you were getting, and then you were, that's when the bug really got you. That's when I went crazy. Yeah. I started, Archie taught me, he got me started tying flies. Uh, you know, we're living in a tent eating peanut butter sandwiches mm -hmm. for probably five weeks, living on a, on the ground. And we just, we had kayaks on top of the car and we fished and we kayaked. Yellowstone, the Madison, uh, British Columbia, uh, we fished salmon in the Skeena drainage. We did. We did all. We did a lot. Yeah, I, I can hear the excitement in your voice, and I know that feeling myself. When it finally hit me, it, it was an avalanche. It was. I had a problem. You had a problem, right? Yeah. The problem is, it's ten o'clock at night, and you can't get trout out of your head. You you think 
well, I want to go there and I want to go there. And you think, well, I can't. I've got my job. i got my school. Whatever it is, yeah. I can't go. I've got life responsibilities. Yeah. i got my kids, whatever. My wife and I don't have children, but people listening can relate to this, Absolutely. right? Like, we want to live out our dreams and we have all these constraints in life. So let's let's back up just a little bit because that's a wonderful story and thank you for sharing it. Bowdoin College. Is that what brought you to me? Yeah. So how did you pick Bowdoin? Or did Bowdoin pick you? Well, everybody in my family went to one of the big three Ivies, Duck. including my mom. Yep. So when I was time to look for colleges, there was this sort of lens, which I looked through. And this really came from my parents and my whole family, that you just went to school in New England, that there really wasn't another place one mm-hmm. went to college. So yeah. I looked at New England schools, and this was the place that really spoke to me. I looked at bigger urban schools like the ones the one my parents went to, and then I looked at smaller rural schools, and Bowdoin was just – this was the place I wanted to go. Understandably. I love the campus. I love the people. I love everyone I've ever met that had anything to do with Bowdoin. I only wish I'd gone there myself. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I, I've spent a lot of time there. So, um, Okay, so we, we did talk about that. What did you study at Bowdoin? I studied art history. Love it. I love, oh my gosh. Well, so I majored in art history, but there weren't minors in those days. I graduated, I was class of 77. I took a year off, graduated in 78. There was no such thing as a minor in those days, but essentially I minored in geology. So it it was the ideal liberal arts education. Art history, I studied some history. I studied a little bit of economics. Um, I took a wonderful anthropology course as a senior I I had a fantastic experience, and geology was mind blowing. Geology was really just fascinating to me. And after Bowdoin, I ended up in the West. I studied for a year in California, taking courses that Bowdoin didn't offer. I studied things like meteorology, mm-hmm. remote sensing, physical geography, environmental law. So it was really kind of studying land and water use. Love it. Three different versions of hydrology. Mm-hmm fascinating desert geomorphology thermal infrared remote sensing i study this was incredible so one semester i took a course in digital image processing so we took landsat imagery numbers well really ones and zeros and we used algorithms to do enhancements of whatever the satellite was was scanning the people that i studied from uh, basically invented Adobe Photoshop. It's the same technology. Absolutely amazing. And then after a year of studying at UC Santa Barbara, uh, I was a naturalist in environmental education school in Northern California. I worked for a big county school system. And then I ended up studying natural resource policy at the University of Michigan, studied water policy. I never knew any of this. And it turns out, Michael, that if you do all your coursework for a master's degree, and you write two-thirds of a master's thesis, but you don't write the last third, you don't get any credit at all. I just, anyway, that that was disappointing to me. So you didn't get a master's? Did not get a master's. But you worked, you you put a lot of effort in at that. I I have to say, I love the coursework. Mm. And I tell myself that if I'd had a word processor, I was terrible at typing. Yes. I got a laptop computer some years later, and I thought, you know, if I'd had this, mm-hmm. I would have finished my degree. But anyway, 
That was Ann Arbor. I met my wife there. Um, back up a little bit. One day when I was a naturalist in California, I went to the San Mateo fly fishing show. I met a guy running a booth, Jim Rowinski, who ran a business in downtown West Yellowstone, downtown West Yellowstone, the Artful Angler. Yes. You remember the No, but oh I heard gosh. that show. No, uh, Garrett talks about it. Okay, sure, yeah. sure. So Jim ran it, wonderful guy. We became friends in about five minutes. And I'd start to go visit him and, and his family in West Yellowstone. And uh, we kind of lost touch. I knew that he'd been hired by L.L. Bean from West Yellowstone. You know who hired him? Tom Ackerman. Believe it. And Believe Scott it. Sanford. Yeah. They fell in love with Jim. We all do. He's just a, a wonderful guy. And uh, so one day the phone rings in 1986, and it's Jim. And he goes, he goes, hey, Matt, you were just in teaching fly fishing for L.L. Bean. I was living in Oregon at the time. I go, yeah. And he goes, great. So I, I had to go through the you know the procedure. I came out for an interview. I and so you know that's that's how I started to be. Had you been teaching before? No, but Jim and I knew each other pretty well. Right. We had fished together. He sort of had a sense of how I might do in that environment. And and honestly, I got hired to basically be the bug specialist. The head instructor at the time was Dave Whitlock. Well, Dave knew much more about aquatic insects than I did. But Dave had a really full plate as head instructor, and they needed somebody to carry this really a sort of heavy load of introducing our students to aquatic insects and then showing them how the bugs that I would go out and collect actually were imitated by the flies that they tied, the flies that were in the box as we showed them. So not so indifferent from what they do today, but this was the early start of that. We still have the bug show, right. the Albion Fly Fishing Schools where I still teach this much and I'm holding my fingers very close together, but I, I love it there. I, I love the people. I, the, the fellow I work for is just a delight, Casey Mealy. And I, I think the world of the, yeah. the program and the company, my coworkers are fabulous. So I don't really want to leave. So anyway, we're still teaching the buck show and that's Dave called it the buck show. Sure. In fact, I've probably got some slides of his somewhere that say bug show on them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Macaulay, tell the audience who Dave Whitlock is and was. Dave died of a stroke about a year and a half ago, something like that. Apologies to his lovely widow, Emily, if I get that wrong. No, I think you're right. Um, Dave was an iconic figure in fly fishing. Anybody of my era, I'm 67, will, who's been fly fishing for a long time, would remember Dave. Dave was from Oklahoma, grew up in the Dust Bowl, youngest of seven children. Father was a construction welder. They were dirt poor. Dave was a small guy. I'm 5'6". He was smaller than I was. Yeah. He had polio as a child. He had every strike against him. And he became one of the world's top fly fishing personalities, force of personality. He was an all shucks kind of guy, very warm, uh, quick to smile, a fabulous artist, very talented at that, southern accent, which was great. Um, and he, and he, he was fascinated by trout fishing. You know, he grew up in a world without trout. Oklahoma and then Arkansas, but he had the big tailwater fisheries in Arkansas and became a specialist in big brown trout at night on streamers because of that. 
But Dave spent a lot of time in Montana, learned his aquatic insects, illustrated them, wrote about their life cycles, and then about the flies that imitated them. He, oh, and hoppers. Dave Whitlock was yep. the master of hoppers. So if you if you go to a fly shop and you see a Dave's hopper, that's Dave Whitlock's hopper. Yeah. And that is, that's the gold standard in grasshopper patterns. So um, I worked with Dave for three years. Um, and a really remarkable guy, very talented. I got to say this about Dave. Dave Whitlock, how do I say this? He made the world safe for people who fly fished for fish that are on the margins. Yes. So when he came up, the, the world was just trout fishing. And it was largely dry fly fishing. But let's just say the world was about trout fishing. And if you fly, if you bass fished, well, you are a lower class citizen. Absolutely. So Dave comes along and he's got he's got the, the ideal chops for fly fishing for bass to design these beautiful hair bugs, shaving them with razor blades, making them kind of fun looking, very effective patterns, throwing them on eight weights with big stubby leaders, which is what you need to do to throw a big bug like that. And then he writes about aquatic trout foods. Dave Whitlock's Guide to Aquatic Trout Foods. I have it on my shelf. Fantastic book. So all of a sudden, he gets international credibility as a technical trout guy. And all these trout people hear Dave evangelizing about fly fishing for bass, and they go, well, that's okay. If Dave Whitlock does it, then I'm not a lower-class citizen for doing it. He brought thousands of people to fly fishing for everything else. Myself included. Uh, and some of my mentors, Dan Legier, is an example. I remember the day that Dan asked me to guide some guys bass fishing. And, you know, I grew up in Kennebec County, Maine, Mac. I'm surrounded by smallmouth bass, mm -hmm. some of the best there is in the area. It was a four-letter word to me. I looked right down my nose at it until 10 o'clock in the morning when I realized I had two guys from Texas that really knew how to fly cast. And they had landed their fifth or sixth fish on Indian Pond, four or five pounds off in the stumps. <laughs> right. And the light went off in my head. <laughs> and not only that, back to Dave Whitlock. Yeah. I watched Dave Whitlock do some casting demonstrations, not just in shows, but privately. He had great, he was a fisherman's caster. He could, he could make the, he could strip the fly back 40 feet from an 80 foot cast and then almost do like a roll cast type mend without moving the fly. And then make that fly go back in the uh, right. You've seen it, right? I used to do the demo after right. Dave left. We I all did, practiced it. Yes, yeah. I did the demo myself. But yes, Dave was a really creative guy, and he he just opened a whole lot of doors in this world for kind of outside the box fly fishing. Yeah, he was a great guy and really an artist. I know you said that, but he truly was. I mean, his artwork was incredible. It looked like it, there was a real trout coming right out of the the. The canvas. So you know, I gotta say this about Please. about Dave's artwork. Um, I had been looking at one of his books at home one night. I go to the fishing schools the next day, and I said, "I said, Dave, I said, every one of your fish is smiling." And he smiled back, and he said, "Always make your animals smile." You see, he said this as an illustrator. Yeah. And if you look at Robert McCloskey's blueberries for sale, which just had this big exhibit at Curtis Memorial Library in Brunswick, where my wife works. I mean, it's it's a real gift to take an animal 
that you draw. And instead of making it perfectly lifelike, put a smile on it. It just, it lights us up and we don't even know why we're so happy. And so you look at Dave's brown job, they all smile a lot. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I love blueberries for Sal on One Morning in Maine. Just great, great, great. It's Maine writing. Um, all right. Well, there we are. So you are now working at L.L. Bean. Uh, sounds like, are you working at L.L. Bean or was this more volunteer work? What was what was your first involvement with the fly fishing school and someone inviting you to join it? Obviously, you were working with Dave Whitlock. Take me from there. Give me because you you eventually become a very important person in the fly casting world. So you went from bugs to fly casting somewhere in there. So I worked with Dave for three years, and Dave was head instructor. And then in 1990, we got a, a, a new guy from Michigan, a fishing guide. You might you knew John Clusing. No. Okay. Steelhead guide, spectacular angler, uh, very driven to, to angle at really the highest level, had been head guide at a lodge in Alaska, really just gifted with particularly big fish. And um, John was head instructor for, well, six years, 90 to 95 that I was there. Yeah, nine, for six years. And one thing that I noticed both about Dave and John was that while they were excellent fishing casters, and you, you, you were accurate in your description of Dave, they were not technically elegant casters. And that, but that wasn't the issue for me. The issue was we were not very good at teaching casting. Dave Whitlock, famous guy, John Clusing, spectacular fisherman. Casting instruction was not their strong suit. I remember sitting under a tree in the parking lot at the fog house at L.L. Bean on Desert Road. The tree is still there with Dave and the whole staff, really talented bunch of people. I was low man on the totem pole. I was the least skilled. I knew the least. I was just hungry and learning. It was about six weeks in to my the beginning of my career there. And Dave, when we started talking about casting instruction, and I made a lot of notes and I thought, we're not very good at this. What made you think that? Because our students were not very good. Right. We saw the cast. Yeah. They were not good. No. And very few of our students came out of that school. They came out knowing what a cast was. They could get the fly out there some. They could sort of roll cast. And I'm, I'm lumping people in together. It was really hard on me because I knew these folks were going to go off and buy gear. And I thought, we have not done right by them. We have not given them the tool, the most important tool you can get when you learn to fly fish is not how to tie a knot. You can learn that on the web. It's not how to tie a woolly bugger. You can learn that on the web. You can't learn to fly cast well, actually, we can now train people remotely, but we couldn't come close to doing that in those days. No, no. We had no idea what we were doing. And I thought, this is the biggest problem we have in this program, and I want to address it. And so I got interested in it. And I started studying and learning. We used to play a film called The Secret of Flycasting by Jim Green. How did Jim really become my mentor? I studied that film frame by frame, practically. Tom Ackerman remembers this. I worked with Tom for a few years at Beans. He was there when we would play Jim Green's 16 millimeter film. And I studied that just intricately. And there was one thing Jim did with the rod in his hand. And I watched that and I thought, that's his secret. He doesn't actually name it, 
Jim was not the instructor he would be today. So he didn't specify what he was doing with his hand. And I watched it and I went, oh. And I went out and I tried it. And it was a way of using various parts of the hand to stop the rod. And I went, that's it. And that was the instant I became a good flycaster. So I got more and more interested. I started reading, studying. Fast forward 1992. I'm on the telephone, uh, working the telephones during the winter for L.O. Bean. By the way, fishing school was really hard work. We worked very long hours. I was, we were all really dedicated. I was, I worked very hard. Sure. So I would not have done that job for no pay. You said something about I didn't know. being a volunteer. It's like, I, I don't know. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Plus, Beans is a professional company. It is. We had people paying us, yeah. and you couldn't have your, your, your and staff do anything but get paid. There are liability issues with that. So one night, I'm working telephones. It was November of 92. I read a blurb in Fly Fisherman magazine. It said that Mel Krieger, we all knew who Mel was. The Essence of Flycasting, this iconic book. Again, that's on my bookshelf. All the casting books are on my bookshelf. And Fly Fisherman Magazine said that Mel had started a program at FFF, Federation of Fly Fishers, to train and certify flycasting instructors. Oh, he reeled you right in. And I went, what? Oh, yeah. I called him up out of the blue. Hey, Mel, um, my name is Macaulay Lord. I'm, I'm calling you from Maine. I'm a fly fishing instructor at LLB, and I just read this little thing in Fly Fisherman Magazine about what you've started at FFF, and I think it's awesome, and I've just called to ask you more about it. Mel Krieger spent 45 minutes on the phone with a total stranger, this kid in Maine, who was just interested in fly casting, and it was off to the races from there. Mel became my dear friend. You know, he started out as my mentor, and then we ended up working together. And he was an amazing person. I went crazy for casting instruction, really because of Mel. I was fortunate enough to be, I had him uh, give me a fly casting lesson one day at one of the shows with Gary Borger standing directly next to him. At the end of the day, the building was closed. We were breaking down. We're at the casting pool. He had just invented the mellow. So you have, Right. I named it that. You did. Okay. So he, I called it the mellow because. Yeah. Yes. So for the audience, what is the mellow, Mac? Um, <laughs> Joan Wolf invented. The fly The fly Right. And Mel came along a few years later and said to Joan, Joan, you're using the wrong yarn. Joan used this really fluffy yarn. Totally. And Mel said, you need macrame yarn. And Joan said, well, thanks, Mel, but I, I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. So Mel recommended to people that they use this macrame yarn. People riffed on it from there. I've seen, I have actually, oh, yeah. I have a tapered macrame yarn end that's like a tapered fly line. Don't brag, Matt. <laughs> somebody gave it to me, yeah, okay. right? They're great. And then, this is wild. The part, I think the reason I named it the Mellow and then I then wrote about it, because I wrote, I wrote a piece on this with Mel's help, one day in the mail arrives from Mel's place in San Francisco, a shooting head, an indoor shooting head. Michael, can you imagine <laughs> this guy, me, who's a fly casting geek? And here's this package from Mel Krieger. 
um, a thick piece of motto, it's chartreuse. It's in my basement. Yeah. A piece of green parachute cord and something that passes for a liter and some yarn on there. If you and I were to walk into my living room right now, which is right behind us, yes, yeah. I can string this thing up. Now you've had you got a shoulder thing going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And your doc has said you can't double haul no, Michael Jones. No, I'm done. But if you could Oh, you could you could haul it. You, could. you can double haul indoors. I'm hoping L. Bean will do this this winter. I've I've told him, hey, look, I could teach double haul indoors in the store. Yeah. In February. Let's go back to the Flyo and the Mellow. Yeah, yeah. There are some benefits there too that I felt in me. I always felt, and Bean sold the Flyo. You could go in and buy yes. the yarn, the, the Joan Wolf. I always felt it was a little too snappy and quick, and there was no feeling of loading of the rod. Whereas the Mellow, there was some, there's some density to the, to the, to the line. And as a result, you could curve cast and you could reverse curve cast. You could, Throw a pile. I mean, you could throw a pile of cast with a flyo, but you understand where I'm going with that. It actually felt mellow to me. Oh, that's that's great. <laughs> well, I think I think I called it the mellow and because of him, it was perfect because yeah. of him. I'm not sure I, I connected M E L hyphen O to the word mellow. M E L L W. Um, Mel didn't sell that product. Oh. Mel just said essentially buy the flyo and put this yarn on it. It's such I did so. But Tim Rajeff comes along years years later. Tim, my dear friend, who's a, what a guy. Um, Tim comes along years later and designs a better yarn rod and sells it as the Echo Micro Practice Rod. And then years later, I'm with a friend in his backyard in Argentina. He's got one of these. He goes, hey, Macaulay, let's let's cast with this thing. And we're casting and Juan Jose is a very good caster. And we get to the point where we air out the whole yarn. And I said, Juan, let's tie some mono to the back of this. Yes, we make a shooting head. We made a shooting head. Tim now sells it. So it's essentially Mel's mellow indoor shooting head, but with Tim's tweaks. And it's brilliant. It works. And it's great. It's I, I mean, Maine's a long, there's a long winter in Maine. I spent a lot of time working on my cast with a practice rod, uh, pantomime, general. Let's back up a little bit, Mac. You were telling me that you were becoming introduced to FFF, Federation of Fly Fishers. You're on the phone with Mel Krieger, and he is gracious enough to offer you 45 minutes of his time. And what was the conversation like, and where did it go from there? Well, Mel was, um, he was evangelical in his fervor for fly fishing. He was passionate about beautiful fly casting, and Mel was a really beautiful caster. I remember hearing guides complain about Mel getting out on the stream or the ocean even and practicing beautiful casts instead of fishing. God bless Mel. He he did what made his heart sing, right? Um, that conversation was just, it was so it meant so much to me. You know, sometimes it it doesn't take a whole lot for us to have a big impact on someone's life. And what he gave me that evening, you know, it just has stayed with me forever. We became good friends. I mean, I love to fish. You love to fish. But here we are talking in my dining room because, you know, we're connected through more than just fishing. Gun to my head. If you and I could fish together right now or just go out on the lawn and cast together, I'd prefer to cast together on the lawn. 
that's where I'm at now. I just enjoy, I, I, we, because we're talking about something where we geek out, I love this stuff. You know, it's just, <laughs> uh, and that's actually, so I want to, I want to stop there. So you, we're starting to get involved with FFF. I want to say that it wasn't long after that, you've got a few certifications. I came to a class that you were teaching and we we're over in New Hampshire. It was a rainy day. 1996. Sounds about right. And I was, uh, as Bob Dion would describe, a decent organic caster. I'd never been really shown how to do it, a little bit by a neighbor, but I, I could, I could, I could cast a flatboard. And you taught myself and Bob what we didn't know because you had been, someone had obviously lit a fire in you. You had gone from that moment out at the fog farm, sitting under the tree and having this moment of clarity that maybe there's more to be learned about teaching. And, and maybe the learning process of teaching fly casting. And we talk about kinesthetics and auditory learners and different learning styles. What happened next with FFF for you? Did you go take a class? Well, sort of. But I apprenticed myself to everybody who was anybody. I would go to these conclaves, as they were called, uh, usually in West Yellowstone or Livingston, Montana. The Federation of Fly Fishers had one every August. It was July, actually, I think. And, well, I did finally meet, I met Mel, who was 93. Mel and Al Kite were talking. They're like, hey, this, this guy's kind of interesting. Like, he's kind of one of us. He's a geek. So, 1993, I introduced myself to Steve Rajeff, Joan Wolfe, Lefty Cray. I did have a lesson from Gary Borger in the alley in West Yellowstone behind the Artful Angler, in about 1981. So I'd already met Gary. But Joan, Jimmy, Alkite, Mel, Steve Rajeff, and then later his brother Tim. And I listened to them teach, watched them teach, made notes. I developed this long sort of report for Tom Ackerman, who was my boss at the time at Bean saying, Tom, Here's how we should change the way we teach casting. Good for you. Presumptuous of me, I wasn't the head instructor. Well, when I became head instructor in 96, we changed things. And I'll tell you, Michael, I, I used to have videotapes and beans from before and after. We started, we filmed our students in 1986, my first year. 86. Filmed, 1986. We filmed them all the way through. We still filmed them. The difference between the old way and the new way was dramatic, simply because, I don't know, I guess I paid attention to the details. Instead of talking about concepts in fly casting, oh, the straight line path of the rod tip, oh, the, the smooth acceleration, stuff like that. No, that's actually not how people learn to cast. They learn to cast by being given discrete, discrete tasks. So when you teach a young person to drive a car, you don't talk about the fuel-to-air mixture. You don't talk about fuel injection or carburation. You don't talk about compression ratio, all that stuff. You say, okay, if you want to make the car go faster, push your foot down on the gas pedal slowly. Okay, If you want to make the car slow down or stop, move your foot over to the brake and push down on that. To make the car go to the right, turn the wheel that way, mm. et cetera. That's how people learn to do things. They do. And that's the, the thing that I like about it is when I started to get introduced to your universe of wanting to teach, 
there were some building blocks. And one of the things that you really had to understand was what you were saying. What is shooting the line by definition? What is stopping the rod by definition? So if it, if we're all in agreement, and that's where Gordy Hill got really good with the MCI testing was to just really be clear about what it is. Because once you're clear and you understand what it is, then you can explain it to people that don't understand it in a very easy, digestible way. And that, if I had never been taught those skills by people like yourself and others, I would still struggle to teach. I would have been one of those old LLB instructors. Like, oh, what? Just do it like me. You know, you can't, you have to be able to teach it. We just weren't very good at it. We weren't careful in the way we we demonstrated and explained things. So, um, yeah, I remember I I met Gordy right after he passed his master casting instructor exam. Just because you mentioned his name, I know him. I love I loved him. I don't know if Gordy's still with us, but I I would geek out for hours on uh, just reading everything about the MCI. He had an online chat. Sure. And every morning, you know, he would give us a challenge or he would, you know, give us a, a topic and we'd have to study, learn, and then get feedback and see what other people had to say. And, uh, you know, let's just talk about creeping along. We're not going to define what creeping is to the audience, but just this is a problem and it can be a, a problem for some people in casting. And everyone's different approach to it. How do they deal with it? How do they teach it? And I got right into it. But Gordy, when I first met him, was at a Federation of Fly Fishers meeting. And I didn't know who he was. Yeah. So would you tell the audience who Gordy Hill is in a paragraph? Who, I mean, he's a, he's a surgeon. He's done more hip replacements than anyone else, right? Yeah, more than that. So Gordy Hill, forget where he grew up, goes to Tufts Medical School, becomes an orthopedic surgeon, world-renowned. I met him when he'd retired to basically Key West. Uh, why was he a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon? He, he invented a new way to do hip replacement. And it brought him a lot of fame. And um, and I, I think it was probably lucrative for him as well. He was just born to teach. If you're listening, Gordy, hey, we, we miss you. Yeah, we do miss you. <laughs> well, he did, he did a podcast with Andy Hill from Millhouse uh, recently. And Andy could not capture Gordy Hill's interview in one interview. Because after I heard the first one, I said to myself, he missed it. There's so much more to this guy that you don't know about or that they were unable to expose. Four episodes later, Gordy Hill part two. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that with you too, Mac, okay? Because okay. this is going to go on. Oh, great stuff. Anything you want to share from that time that you remember? You know, the people that I met were so generous to me with their time. Jimmy Green, his wife, Carol. Joan Wolf, who is to this day, the most creative fly casting instructor we've ever known. Mm -hmm. Absolutely brilliant teacher. Lefty, although Lefty was an iconoclast, he, he was way outside the mainstream and um, had some ideas about fly casting that were frankly inaccurate, but didn't matter because he wasn't this wonderful ambassador to the sport. Remembered everybody. Of course, Mel was so gracious to me. And then Tim Rajev, who became a really good friend, just a great, great person. Matt, you're five six, did you say? Yeah, I'm five nine. Right, I'm one. I'm one fifty five. That's what I weighed when I graduated from college. I can cast the whole fly line when I don't have a bad shoulder. <laughs> right. um, and a guy who's you know a football player can hardly get seventy feet out if he doesn't know how to do it. So fly casting, to me, being a casting geek, 
it was just about, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's a little bit more information. Oh, there's a little that. Okay, so if I utilize efficiency, which is to say, don't use any more power than you absolutely need to complete the task, right? Yes, but I will always rephrase a negative with a positive yeah, when I'm teaching. So, and I, this is what I've been training instructors to do for 30 years. Always teach in the affirmative. So if I, if I say to you as my student, Michael, don't do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have failed you. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I think I need to get Michael to stop doing that, I have to turn that into an instruction. So when you finish your cast, have your elbow right at your side. Make sure your upper arm is pointing straight down at your foot. I like that. Something like that. I like that. Or when you make the cast, and when you finish the back cast, make sure your upper arm is pointing at the target. Now, you might ask, gosh, how can people do this? That's been hard for people to learn to fly cast for the last 600 years. True. How can people do this if Macaulay's not in the room with them? Or on the field with them. An iPad, an Android tablet on a tripod as a digital mirror. Now you know okay. exactly what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And you're not he hearing somebody like no. Michael or Macaulay tell you. No. You're seeing it yourself yeah. in real time. I like that. I want to talk more about that, but I think it's a good time for us to take a short break. Uh, we're going to do a fly line uh, flashback and uh, come back and I want to talk to you more about your work with videotaping flycasters and how you learned and how they learned from it. Great. Thanks. This flyline flashback focuses on the life and legacy of the famous fly fisherman, Lee Wolf. Lee Wolf was a sports fisherman and hunter, conservationist, author, photographer, and film producer who was born in Valdez, Alaska on February 10th, 1905. Lee learned to fish at an early age in the rivers and salt waters surrounding Valdez. By age 10, he was learning how to fly fish with lancewood greenheart rods and silk fly lines and leaders. During the winter of 1915 and 16, his father moved the family to Brooklyn, New York to assume management of his deceased grandfather's coal business. Lee Wolf disliked the big city of Brooklyn and longed for the outdoors of Valdez. However, he did well in Brooklyn public schools, achieving honor student status. In the summer of 1926, at the age of 21, Lee Wolf traveled to Paris, France to study art. After receiving some recognition for his evolving craft, Lee Wolf left Paris to return to New York and start a career as an artist. During this time, he was writing a few articles, teaching fly tying, and giving talks on fly fishing to various clubs, and gradually becoming respected as an authority on the subject. Through this successful influence, Lee Wolf became a freelance writer and a filmmaker, focusing on fishing subjects. Wolf initially visited Newfoundland in 1935 on a fishing expedition. Wolf promoted salmon and bluefin tuna fishing, establishing two world records. He also ran fishing camps on the Great Northern Peninsula. Over the next three decades, Wolf served as a consultant on sport fishing, hunting, and tourist resources in Newfoundland and Labrador. Wolf introduced several innovative techniques for sports fishermen, which received international recognition. These included the short wading vest worn by fly fishermen, now known as the modern fly vest. He also created the first hair wing dry flies for salmon fishing. Wolf favored the designation of salmon as game fish and promoted conservation by utilizing the catch and release method. 
He also later established Anglic schools in conjunction with his future wife, Joan Wolfe, based on the principles he felt were important to embody and share with others to improve the sport. You may recall the history of Joan Wolfe from a previous flashback episode from Season 1. Lee was hugely successful at transforming his passion for fly fishing into a career in profitable business. Lee Wolf released a book, Handbook of Freshwater Fishing, where he maps out the principles of catch and release fishing. The way he put it, a fish is far too important to only be caught once. Lee Wolf is considered to be the premier proponent of catch and release fishing. Lee advocated for setting up organizations such as Trout Unlimited and others like it to protect precious habitats for the trout and salmon that live there. Lee Wolf designed many innovative dry fly patterns that still carry his name to this day. Lee became sponsored by many sporting companies and began filming and writing out of his Piper Super Cub float plane with a one-piece cane fly rod. These stories brought the audience to the far reaches of northern Canada, to places that had never seen an artificial fly, let alone a float plane. Wolf made 20 films about fly fishing and hunting. His articles and photography were published in many magazines, too numerous to mention here. Lee Wolf died on April 28, 1991, near Hancock, New York, when the Piper Super Cub he was piloting crashed into trees at the end of the runway during a landing. Wolf, a pilot of 44 years, lost control of the plane because of an acute medical situation and was possibly dead at the controls when the plane crashed. Lee Wolf was quoted as remarking, The finest gift you can give any fisherman is to put a good fish back. And who knows if the fish that you caught isn't someone else's gift to you. The legacy of Lee Wolf is an unmatched gift to all anglers, past, present, and future. Now, back to the second half of our episode. Let's go back to um, the work with video. Did, did How did you come to the idea to use that? I mean, obviously you'd seen, like you said, Jim Green. Well... Yeah, I mean, we we showed a film at the beginning of every class. And Jimmy was just a, his friends called him Jimmy. He was just a better caster than Dave Whitlock was. Mm -hmm. He was more oriented to teaching than Dave was. So we showed this film so people could see really great fly casting. Jimmy was a many-time national fly casting champion. He competed in the world. I think he was a world champion as well. So he was a special caster. Dear friends with Mel. He worked extensively with the Ray Jeff boys. I mean, they all knew each other. It's a tiny world. It's fly casting geeks. So at the fishing schools at Beans, we showed Jim's film, and then we talked way too much about casting and then sent our students out. We videotaped them on old-fashioned Sony Betacam. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we ever used VHS. Yes, we did actually use VHS. And then we went to digital tape and more digital this and digital that. And finally, we got an all digital, was just recorded to a card. And one year, the Beans came to me. I was head instructor. I became head instructor in 1996. I may, I may have mentioned that. Beans came to me and said, three-day fly fishing schools just aren't popular anymore. You need to cut it down to two days. Build us a two-day curriculum. So I did, and I cut out videotaping. I thought... Well, tactics are more important. Tying's more important. The bug show, we still have the bug show. We still have tying's, et cetera. And I, I forget what I put in instead. I, I, I forget, but I cut out videotaping. And Rod McGarry, yeah. master casting instructor Rod McGarry, my dear friend, comes to me and goes, Matt, 
You got to put casting back in. He's right. Videotape. You, you, got, you, you, can't, you can't leave it out. It's essential. He was right. He yes. was right. He was right. So I did. I rebuilt the curriculum at Rod's suggestion, put it back in. It was off to the races. And what happened was I saw it week in, week out to a person. Everybody cast better when they saw themselves casting. Everybody. You and me alike. I mean, do you ever see something in your own cast? You go, I didn't know that I was doing that. All the time. Me too. So uh, two years ago, I built the, the video for the teaching workshop for FFI. So if you were to try to get certified today, whether it's in Tokyo or Shanghai or Jakarta or Sydney or Melbourne or Des Moines, you have to take a teaching workshop. So I built this video that underlies the teaching workshop for all the casting instructors who want to get certified by Fly Fishers International. Whatever country you're in, you take a, two, a mandatory two-hour teaching workshop, and the heart of that teaching workshop is the video I built with a small committee of people, but it's my video. And the most important thing in that video is not how to hold the rod, where to make the stops, blah, blah, blah. The most important thing in that video for casting instructors worldwide is that they must start to use an iPad or an Android tablet, some sort of tablet computer with a button press so that the camera's flipped around so that you're, you, the caster, are looking at your own image on the screen and you are fly casting while you look at your own fly casting on the, on the screen. It is a radical, radical way to learn. And it, it cuts out 35 years of my talking at my students. Well, Michael, on your back cast, your rod's coming to this position. Mm -hmm. It's the difference between my telling you about the movie mm -hmm. and my hitting play. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of casting instruction involves, let's say, my showing you what to do, some, to do, or you're showing me. If I'm your student, mm -hmm. you're a very accomplished fly, a fly casting instructor yourself. Mm -hmm. If you want to teach me something, the first thing you'll do is you'll show it to me. You won't say, now, Macaulay, I want you to do blah, blah, blah. You've got the rod. You show it to me. You demonstrate it to me. Great. So now, and you probably explain a little bit as you're going, but oh. mostly you show me something, you, you attach some words to it. So now I really know what you want me to do. Why am I so ineffective, like the thousands of students I've had over the years, at translating what you showed me and told me into doing a good cast? Why am I so bad at that? Why was I so troubled in 1986? Because my students were so bad. The reason is because they didn't know that they weren't doing what we taught them to do. That's right. They didn't know it. Why didn't they know it? Because they couldn't see what we saw. That's right. And the problem is this human concept called proprioception. And propri do, you, have you, do you know the word? No, no, I love it. Go ahead. Proprioception is your awareness of how one part of your body moves in space relative to the rest of your body. So let's say, before you leave my house, you and I drink a large glass of bourbon. And you get in your car and you start driving. And you, you weave, you get pulled over, you should get pulled over. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're not going to have bourbon before you leave. That's okay. All right. I'm not disappointed. <laughs>
and the police officer pulls you on and says, uh, Mr. Jones, would you um, please, would you close your eyes and uh, touch your index, your right index finger to your nose? And you, you go like this in your index finger. I'm now touching the top of my head. Uh, Mr. Jones, thank you. Do that with your left hand, please. And your, your index finger goes in by your neck. The guy knows you're intoxicated. Why? Because alcohol has wrecked your proprioception. Your concept of where your your index finger is relative to the tip of your nose. Yeah. So you just noticed as I closed my eyes there, I touched my index finger to the tip of my nose because I'm not altered. Right yes. Now. Yeah. Flycasters. Allegedly. <laughs> Flycasters are all intoxicated. Yeah. I'm I'm joking. No, no. I that, I know what you mean. Yeah. So the problem is that when I told somebody to do A or B, she, and she went and tried to do it, she didn't know that she wasn't doing it. She assumed that she was doing yeah. it. And I would say, well, Susan, um, your rod tips, your rod's going a little farther back than you realize. So stop your rod sooner. She didn't know that she wasn't doing it. No. Not her fault. No. My fault. Yeah. I wasn't getting her to do it. And you were working with people. You've been, for the audience, just... Understand that you're dealing with clay at this point. People are coming to learn to fly cast. This is different than the guy that's been doing it with muscle memory for 50 years saying, Mac, I need you to add 50, no, five more feet to my cast, please. I'm getting ready to go on this trip for exotic species somewhere. Yes. You finish the sentence. Those to me are the ones that are also falling victim to this pro, what do we call it? Proprioception. They can't unprogram what they are just cast in stone to do every time they cast a fly rod. And it's interesting to do the video with someone like that, because sometimes I don't even have to say a word. I just show them. I go, here you go. Look, just watch. And they, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. So the beauty of this, Michael, is that as you're false casting, so I'll just point this out for the, our listeners, Michael's false casting at the camera. And what he would be looking for if he had a fly rod in his hand is tracking here. Yeah. His devi the deviation of his rod from planar, as we call it, gotcha. P-L-A-N-A-R. Yeah. And so if Michael has a significant tracking here, he will see it. He will fix it immediately. Yes. He will watch himself. It's essentially, it is a digital mirror. Mm -hmm. He'll watch himself in the mirror. He will self-correct mm. I wanted people to be able to self-correct in 1986. I just didn't know how to do it. People can't hold six things in their head at once. Yeah. But if if I say to you, make the rod move in a single plane. Mm. You know, you studied ge uh, geometry. geometry. Yeah. <laughs> I studied geology. Yeah. You studied geometry in 10th grade or whatever. You know what a single plane is. Yeah. Move the rod as if you're sliding it along a pane of glass. Sure. How's that? For a child, yeah. we wouldn't have to talk geology. Uh, Geology, listen to me. Yeah. So it's very grounding. You fix <laughs> you fix it immediately yeah. and you fix it yourself and you don't need me, an instructor. So you're false casting. Mm -hmm. And you've had an issue with, let's say, rod rotation. Your rod rotates too much. And now when you watch yourself, you fix it instantly. Yeah. You you go, Oh, no, I need to stop there and yeah. there. You self-correct. Yes. You don't need me anymore. And that makes me so happy because you're going to be better off for it. And it's not just that you're going to be a better caster in quotes. It's going to be easier for you to get the fly to the fish so that when you go fishing, 
you'll have an experience like I had one day in 1988. I'd been teaching for two years as a professional at Albine. I'm fishing a few hundred yards below Lahardy Rapids on the Yellowstone River in Yellowstone Park in Montana. And I realized that I was not thinking about my fly cast. I'm 32 years old, two years as a professional fly fishing instructor, and the light has come on and I realized I'm not thinking about my cast anymore. Using this technique at home, you can essentially fix yourself. Yeah. And you can fix haul timing. You can fix creep. So that's an incredible thing to share. And, you know, just the only thing I would add to what you just said about Yellowstone was, I think when I was about 32 as well, you were watching the Jim Green videos. I remembered watching Doug Swisher. He had the whole series for Scientific Angler. And fishing around the clock was this thing and the reach cast and all these things. Mainers didn't do that. Uh, th- there were a lot of people that I was influenced by and hanging out with that knew nothing about casting mechanics. And I'm not talking about basic flex the rod, deliver the line. I'm talking about what you can do with the rod to catch fish in different ways, it, as an example, in moving water. So I started to really take a deep dive when I would go out and I would see a rising fish in a river. And I would say, okay, where am I relative to where that fish is? How deep is the water that fish in? And what, what, before I even make my first cast, it was like, for me, sitting at a chess table and my opponent made a move and you don't just move up, you just don't move upon. And that's what I used to do. Fly casting and learning more about it turned into a study of how to not just catch fish, but how, you know what? I don't know that there's not a fish underneath that log, but I'm going to find out. And if you can't get that cast in a way that brings the fish out, it's probably not a fish there. I watched Doug fish once, and we were on the big horn. Yeah, Doug was a genius, and uh, his son Randy's an yeah. old friend of mine. Sure. Randy used to run the fly fishing schools for Sage years ago. Yes, yeah, active in um, fly, FFF mm-hmm. as a casting instructor, mentor, Doug. Actually, Doug Swisher is the guy who taught Dave Whitlock technical trout fishing. Mm-hmm. Doug Swisher and his buddy, Carl Richards. So you may remember the Swisher Richards, no hackle flies. They wrote a book, again on my bookshelf, called Fly Fishing Strategies. That was the book from which I learned technical yeah. trout casting yeah. and presentation techniques. Yeah. Um, yeah, Doug was a genius. He was an incredibly intense fisherman, um, really driven to catch them. Yeah. I love catching fish, but Doug was a little too intense for me. He was. As a casting instructor, uh, Doug used to talk about the microsecond wrist. I haven't used the W word with my students in about 30 years. Why? The more you talk about what the wrist needs to do in a fly cast, the more your students will over-rotate it. I agree. End of story. I agree. So that's why I get my students to move the rod without talking to them about what they have to do with the W word. And in fact, in my, dem- my demos, I don't use any wrist rotation at all. So, And somebody might say, gee, how do you teach fly casting? Truth is, you don't need your wrist to fly cast. So the point is, I don't talk about the W word with my students. Good. I'd like to talk about the book on fly casting that you you were heavily involved, if not 
universally involved with writing the book on fly casting for LLB. Am I right? Yes. I haven't read it in 20 years, so I can't remember what part of I mean, your photographs are all through it, but I mean, yeah, of you is what I'm saying. But did you write it? Yes. Yeah, so in 1998, my dear friend Jim Rowinski, who was still at L.L. Bean, who had recruited me to the L.L. Bean fly fishing schools, was the now the fishing fly fishing product manager at Beans. He had written one or two books with the L.L. Bean name on them, but published by Nick Lyons at the Lyons Press. Many of us older timers remember Nick Lyons and Lyons Press. And he brought me a contract and he said, hey, um, Nick wants a fly casting book. I think you're the guy to write it. Do you want to do it? I said, yes. So my book has L.L. Bean's name on it. That's it. Nobody at the company edited it. They didn't need to. Um, I wrote the book. Jim did the photographs. Yes, the photos are of me. If you want to teach somebody to cast, maybe read it. Read my book or Mel's book. I like Joan's book as well. Yeah. I I'm, I have all of them, yeah. and, and all of the authors are friends of mine. Yeah. Jason Borger, okay. Sheila Hassan, who's Joan Wolf's head instructor at, at Joan Schools, et cetera. I've got all their books. They're all friends. These are all really nice people. And all of us have something interesting to say about casting. But if you want to learn... So that was your first book, though, right? Was that not... Was that it? was my first book, yes. Right. Uh, that was my first casting book. I, I think one of the things that, you know, one of the things that brought you and I together was a Federation of Fly Fishers. It's now called FFI, you told me. Fly Fishers International. Can you explain for the listening audience what the Federation was, what it is? And then what I, I want to do is I want to talk about the different levels of certification because it really applies. You were talking about your book collection, and there's a reason you have a book collection. It's not just because you love those people. It's because it was required reading. Yes. So I forget when the Fly Fishers, Federation of Fly Fishers began, but years ago, they had their annual conclave in West Yellowstone. And an enterprising young guy who was selling insurance, I think in Alabama, named Ray Scott, went to the Federation of Fly Fishers Conclave and heard all these people like probably Dave Whitlock and Joan Wolf and Mel Krieger and Gary Borger. Jimmy Green and Leon Chandler and on and on talking about catch and release and how if you wanted to have good fishing long-term, you needed to release your fish. So Ray Scott goes back to Alabama. He's just started this wild idea to have competition, competitive bass fishing. And he built this little, little organization that he called the Bass Angler Sportsman Society. B-A-S-S. Yes, still exists. Which becomes Bassmasters, which gets acquired by ESPN, which becomes very big dollar. Ray Scott got the idea to promote catch and release in his bass fishing tournaments from the FFF, the Federation of Fly Fishers. So fast forward, Mel Krieger comes along, it's 1992. He says to FFF, we need to professionalize the teaching of fly casting. Why? Golfers have it. Tennis players have it. Skiers have it. You get a certified instructor when you want to learn to swing a golf club or when you want to learn to ski down a mountain. You get somebody with the imprimatur of a serious organization that has professionalized the teaching and the certification of these instructors. And he said, we need that in fly casting. He was right. He was 100% right. Because in those days, it was Mel teaching his way, Joan teaching her yeah. way, Lefty teaching his way. Yeah. And 
they yelled at each other a little bit. Yeah, their style and their substance, and you know, there was probably more that they agreed upon than disagreed upon, but there was a lot of disagreement. They were all doing things essentially the same way. They just had different ways of showing it and describing. Yeah. So, um, Macaulay, if you would, CCI. What is CCI? It's really the first step in becoming a casting instructor. Certified casting instructor. Yeah. You have to pass a very challenging exam, which is partly why I built the teaching workshop that I did. I didn't build it to help people pass the exam but I built it to help them become better instructors. And along the way, their casting would get better than teaching all, all those things. So, McCall, you said exam. It's a written exam and a practical exam. To become certified as a casting instructor, you have to take a 36-question exam. You have to pass 30 of the questions. Mm -hmm. They're a mix of true-false, multiple-choice. I helped to write the test. It's challenging. Um, I helped to make the performance test, it's really challenging. The old pass rate on the test was about 40%. Yeah. I think it's gotten quite a bit higher now. It's closer to 70, I think. Why? Because people get mentors. We highly recommend to them that they get that they get a mentor. Who's qualified to be a mentor? A master certified casting instructor. Master certified casting instructor, very challenging exam. Uh we used to have something called the Casting Board of Governors. It was just dissolved recently. Okay. So there's a replacement organization, replacement body, but essentially it does the same thing. Okay. So just to recap, great explanation, man. So CCI is Certified Casting Instructor. MCI, Master Casting Instructor. That's where I fell short. Like you didn't finish your master's thesis. I spent a decade. Uh, I took the test. Well, before I was ready to take it, I had no, I didn't know what a spring creek was, right? That was, that was the big hole I stepped in with the, with the team that was, could cast well, could do yeah. the cast that they needed. I remember. But there were, there were some fundamental grassroots things that I just didn't know. That test is really, really hard. It's a real challenge. Someone who is a master casting instructor has done a lot of homework. My library, like yours, gone from cover to cover and every one of those books to learn. And I've, Gained so much that although I don't have the certification, I feel like in a lot of ways I'm still, my drive is meaningful. My work when I work with other people is helpful. And I get a lot of positive feedback because I don't try to confuse people. And I've been given the gift from people like Gordy Hill and yourself to take a pause, step back, understand what you're saying before you say it. Don't correct something that's not wrong, right? So the master certification is really much like a master's degree in fly casting instruction. Board of Governors, I think that's invitation only. Yes. Was. I realize you say it's dissolved, but you were on the Board of Governors. Yes. So this amazing thing happened. I take my master instructor test with Jimmy Green, my idol. And he was a sweet, what a nice man. And I take my test. It was 1995. Mm -hmm. It was the first day the test had ever been offered. I think there were 13 of us who took the test. Um, Maybe seven of us passed, something like that. And I took my test, and I knew I'd done well. I I couldn't wait. To, I couldn't wait to take this test with these guys I revered. Well, particularly Jimmy. And Jimmy sticks out his hand and says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna get emotional. You can't see this on the on the podcast, but I'm gonna get emotional here." Jimmy sticks out his hand and says, "Congratulations, outstanding job." 
I'm going to nominate you to the casting board of governors. On the same day. The same sentence. The casting board of governors with Joan Wolf, yeah. Mel Krieger, Lefty Cray, Gary Borger, Steve Rajeff, Al Kite, Chico Fernandez. It goes on and on and on. I I didn't know that. I was just overwhelmed. And you know, Jimmy was the guy from whose film I learned to fly cast. I used to play, I strung up his movie. I threaded the 16 millimeter film from the reel through the projector at the fog house at LLB to show my beginner students, our beginner students, how to fly cast. And here he was saying this to me. Can you imagine no. what that felt like? Well, I can imagine you felt incredibly well. It must have made you feel great. Thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about what you decided to take on as a personal quest at, during middle age. You decided to basically take a different direction in your life. And you got it into doing divinity work. It really was not related to fly fishing. No. But long story short, in 2006, because of a friend, I got interested in becoming a volunteer chaplain. I grew up religious, uh, fell away from organized religion in college, and then Went back to it in graduate school in Ann Arbor. Uh, I started worshiping as a Quaker, lived in the Quaker house in Ann Arbor. Uh, a beautiful sect of Christianity. I come back to Maine, 1986, and I start infrequently attending Quaker meeting. Long story short, I find my way back to the Episcopal Church, which I was raised in in Kentucky. And I start training as a volunteer chaplain. Well, then I learned soon after about big-time chaplain training, which is called clinical pastoral education. It is graduate-level academic education for ministry, typically done at American hospitals, sometimes VA hospitals, occasionally in nursing homes, but usually in teaching hospitals like Maine Medical Center. So in 2008, I think it is, I start training at Maine Med, in what's called clinical pastoral education. And most rabbis, some imams, all Catholic priests, all uh, Episcopal priests, Methodists, Presbyterians, and some evangelical Christian pastors train in clinical pastoral education. So I did this at Maine Med. It's 400 hours total over a course of some months, 200 hours of clinical training. You, you go in and you visit patients. Hi, my name is Macaulay. I'm one of the chaplains here. Would you like me to visit with you? And then 200 hours of classroom time. I did three of those 400 unit segments, two at Maine Med and one at Mercy Hospital, which in those days was a Catholic hospital in Portland. So Mac, what did you learn along the way? You know, you visit with two or 300, you know, two or 300 hours, you said, or 200? 200 hours of yeah. clinical training, which is chaplain. You, what did you, what were you surprised by? What did you, you know, did you surprise yourself? Well, one of the things I learned was that ministry is really more about who you are than about what you know. I was surprised to know that I didn't have to know, I didn't have to remember a lot of Bible passages. What good was that going to do me with a Muslim guy who was really sick? How was I going to minister to this guy if all I had were passages from the, the Christian New Testament 
or the Hebrew Bible, which a lot of Christians refer to as the Old Testament. What I grew up thinking of as the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. Well, knowing Bible passages wasn't going to help me with that guy. What was going to help me was caring about him as a human being and wanting to listen to whatever story he had to tell me. So he's walking down the hall. He's dragging an IV. He's in a Johnny, a nightgown. He's in hospital slippers. And we start talking one day. I'd visited him before, but... We just start talking. And we're talking about faith. And he says to me, I love this guy. He goes, Christians, Jews, Muslims. He sort of holds his hands up in the air and he shrugs and he says, as if it's as plain as day and it is to me, we all worship the same God. Now, that wasn't a surprise to me that we all worship the same God. But the beauty of hearing that from this man who was really sick really caught me. Mm. And I'll say this, chaplaincy, 90% of it is just showing up and being with somebody and listening to them. That's wonderful. There's not much talking you do as a chaplain. You listen. I think we get better at it as we get older. I preached a sermon in April about my book. And I'm a parishioner at St. Paul's Episcopal in Brunswick. And I told my priest that I'd gone to Mississippi to interview people who fished from shore for my book. I told her I was going. I was down there like eight days. I came back and I saw her at church. And I said, I can't begin to tell you what that was like. And she said, would you preach about it? I said, yeah, yeah. So I wrote a sermon about it, wrote sermon after I went back. I went back again. I, I went twice, basically. I went twice in March. So all told, I probably interviewed you know, 15 or 16 people in Mississippi. I told a friend of mine in church as an editor, and I said something about my first chapter. I said, I've written eight drafts, and she smiles, and she goes, that's all. You just didn't start it? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. So after I became a chaplain, I volunteered at Cumberland County Jail in Portland, right down the hill from Maine Medical Center. And I started in 2013. I still volunteer there, but because of the book I'm writing now, I'm I'm not spending any serious time at the jail because I'm so engrossed in this new book that I'm making, which is tangentially about fishing. And what I found was that my work as a chaplain, whether it was in the hospital or with inmates, or I've had it a ministry with some Navy SEALs. It did have one where we took them fishing, and that was very rewarding. But my time as a chaplain made me so much better as a fly fishing instructor. I shut up more. I tried to teach less. I listened more. And this wonderful thing happened years ago. I had a student at the Fog House at Beans who was rushing his forward cast. He'd make a back cast, and then long before the line could straighten out and back, he'd start forward. So I gave him the the sort of the litany of cures, try A that didn't work, try B, and it's really not working. And so I say, it's clear that he really is uncomfortable with the idea of the line descending behind him. I just have a sense that something's going on there. Well, in chaplaincy, you just read a lot of cues in people that aren't verbal. 
I'm just watching and thinking, something's going on here. There's something here. And I said, is it a problem if the line falls behind you? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I know this sounds weird, but what kind of work do you do? And he goes, I used to fly helicopters. And the way he said it made me ask, in, in combat, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, so if the helicopter starts to descend, and he goes, not a good thing. So I said, <laughs> not a good thing, Macaulay. <laughs> I said, uh, well, is there a helicopter here? No, he, he knows I'm kind of. Yeah, hearing. you're leading down the path. Yeah. And going. he goes, he smiles and he goes, well, no. Yeah. And I said, tell you what, let's make a back cast and just hold the rod right there. So make a back cast and just stop the rod. And he, he does it. And the line falls to the ground. I said, is that okay? Anybody get hurt? I'm teasing. He goes, he goes no, no, what he got hurt. I said, good. I said, okay, chuck the line out there in front. I don't care what, how it lands. We're not trying to get him to make a good forecast. We're trying to get him to wait long enough on the back cast. So I said, try that again. And just stop the rod, let it fall. And he does it again. The line falls to the ground. I said, how's that? And he goes, yeah, it's, that's okay. I said, yeah, that's okay. I said, all right, make the forecast. I said, this time, make a back cast and wait too long. Wait so long that the line's kind of fallen behind you. And he makes a perfectly timed the perfect back cast. He waits, actually, he doesn't wait as long as I've asked him to wait. He waits just long enough for the line to straight. And he makes a really good forward cast. Which is a good cast. Yeah. Which is a good cast. Right. And I said, how was that? And he goes, you know, that was okay. And I said, yeah, that, I agree. That was good. I said, do some more of those. That happened because of my work as a chaplain. So it, chaplaincy made me a better casting instructor. I can see how that would work that way. We talked earlier about teaching casting, and people like the sound of their own voice. Less is more so often, and, and I think that that pours over into what we're talking about now. Guilty as charged. I love the sound of my own voice. I do, too. I, I love the sound of your voice, too. <laughs> Stop it. No, but I'm always trying. I struggle to edit myself as a chapman. Shut up, Macaulay. Shut up. Two ears, one mouth. Right. I like that. Two ears, one mouth, Macaulay. <laughs> so I'm going to borrow that one from you. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. And uh, a self taught flycaster has a fool for an instructor. <laughs> I stole that from Tom Ackerman recently. <laughs> I've got to oh, from. Um, that's great. That's a good one, Tom. Hey, Macaulay, tell me about your wife. I met Carol earlier. Uh, I've heard you talk about her over the years, but um, how'd you meet and who is she to you? We, Carol and I met when I was a grad student at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She had, a few months earlier, graduated from Michigan, having studied math and Russian, and she was working in a bookstore. That's appropriate because now she's a librarian. She's, a, she's the head of a department at Curtis Memorial Library in Brunswick. And um, a friend of mine in a fisheries program, which was in my building, told me that for my master's thesis, I needed a reference book on fisheries. I knew I needed one, but I went to him and said, I have no idea what to get. And he said, oh, you want, because you want freshwater fishes of Canada. I said, yeah, but we're in the U.S. He goes, same fish. 
geopolitical border, the fish don't care, right? So I said, where can I get one? He goes, just right down the street at the corner of South and East University at Ulrich's, at Ulrich's, everybody knew Ulrich's. It was the bookstore in Ann Arbor, the student bookstore in Ann Arbor. So I walk three blocks down the street. I walk into Ulrich's and Ulrich's and it's Book Rush. There are a million people in there. So there's a zillion students behind me or it's just up against the counter. And there's this throng of clerks scurrying back and forth, getting the books that people are clamoring yeah. for. And I say to a, a clerk to, to whose attention I've finally gotten, do you have freshwater fishes of Canada? This cute young woman is walking right past this person behind him or her. And here's my question. It says, freshwater fishes of Canada. Of course. Making a joke. She used to, it has a very distinctive cover. It's in my bookcase. Okay. A very distinctive cover. And she used to, she noticed the cover of this book, The Spine. Freshwater fishes of Canada. And she wonders, what kind of dweeby, lost soul will ever open a book like this? The guy she's married to. So she goes and gets this book for me. That was the instant we met. I get up the courage to ask her out on a date. One thing leads to another. Right then? No. No, I had to. You were a return customer. I had to go back a couple of times to get up the courage oh, yeah. to ask her out on a date. A few days later, I go back in. I'm looking at some topographic maps because I love topo maps. This was before Google Earth and Google Maps with satellite imagery. And anyway, she was there, and I did muster the courage to ask her on a date. And so we started going out. She liked to kayak. Um, she's an outdoor person. She's not. A, she doesn't fish per se, but our two black labs love to fish. Mm -hmm. So Carol likes to see the dogs happy. So she comes out with us when we when we go fishing. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of really cool adventures together. She's a Russian speaker. She got a master's in Russian at Middlebury many years ago. She lived and worked in the Soviet Union. We spent a winter in the Soviet Union while she had a big job with the State Department. I had a little job with the State Department. Mm -hmm. I spoke some Russian in those days. My Russian was, I called it advanced survival Russian. We lived in the Soviet Far East for five months. Fascinating. Fascinating experience. Because we lived there in the winter, I got to meet people ice fishing in the Amur River, which is close to the size of the Mississippi. Wow. It's a big river. And I went out and watched people ice fishing in the Amur. Incredible experience. Carol loves dogs. Um, one of the things that I love about her is she's so welcoming to the Bowdoin students that we get to meet. We are host family to a bunch of Bowdoin kids. We love having them over again, not having children of our own. It's it's nice to be able to kind of see them grow up and help them out a little bit. We have we take them to dinner. We drive them to the airport when they need. They store their stuff with us for the summer. And we, in fact, most of them, their parents stay with us when they the parents come to visit. We haven't known any kids who are wealthy enough to pay full freight. So all the kids we know are on financial aid. Mm -hmm. And so their parents usually can't afford to stay in hotels when they come. So their their parents stay with us. And so Carol's wonderful with the the bone kids and she's just a really nice person. I can tell you. You know, she seems like a nice person. Macaulay, I think one of the things that I've taken away just in this conversation today, and again, I knew some things about you before. I learned a ton today. 
But you, both for the term your your work now as a chaplain and also as your with your work as a fly casting instructor, you study. You you you're, you 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 really approach something by studying it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, you know, there are two things there. There's sort of the intellectual fascination with okay, the mechanics of fly casting. But then there's this much deeper human dimension. It's about connecting with someone. It's about helping them do something they really want to do. It's about giving them a tool that makes them hopeful. You know, you know this. If you help somebody make a better fly cast, their joy on the water is magnified. And that's, to be able to do that for somebody, that's powerful. It is. And then in chaplaincy, I've had times with men and women both when I thought, there is no place on the earth that is better for me to be than right here, right now with this person. And it's funny, fishing feels trivial at those moments. When you're with somebody, their heart is pouring out to you and you think, I'm in the right place. That's wonderful. Macaulay, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining the podcast. It means everything to me that you got involved. It's wonderful to hear you tell your stories. And I think it's really important for our audience to have an opportunity to understand some of the great work you've done. And we didn't even scratch a surface. Michael, thank you so much. I, I remember fondly meeting you in 1996 and being with you that beginning really of your journey as a casting instructor and that you're sitting in my dining room now and we're having this conversation what is it, um, 20-some years later, yeah. 23 years later? Uh, More than that. 27 years later, here we are having this conversation. It's really great. So, we, so thank you. No, thank you. I, I Thank you for today. Thank you for the last 27 years. Uh, thank you for being my mentor. Thank you for being my friend. I appreciate that. Oh, amen, brother. Right back at you. Let's do something together. All right. All right. Hey, thanks. thanks. Wow. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.